My name is Jake Barton. Welcome to Historium. In this episode, we are talking to author Dirk Langeveld, who has recently written a book titled The Artful Dodger, the 20-year pursuit of World War I draft dodger Grover Cleveland Bergdahl. Welcome to Historium, Dirk. Thank you. Good to be here. Awesome. Great to have you. So my first question for you is, when did you first take an interest in the subject of history? Uh, well, I had very good his- history teachers in high school. Mm. Uh, they were just very, very passionate about the subject. Um, they were just very, very good about uh, kind of uh, conveying that to the students and really explaining, you know, why why history applies to a uh, applies to real life and uh, how it influences uh, you know things that things that are going on now so it was always just very interesting to learn about those connections and just learn about uh, the stories from the past including you know local local history as well uh, so that just um, so kind of kind of really started at that point so, so you say local history where are you from uh, I live in New London, Connecticut now. I've been here for about uh, nine years. And uh, if you speak about local history, this place has plenty of it. I, uh, oh, yeah, one, I bet. Uh, Benedict Arnold burned the place down back in 1780. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, what a fun tidbit. <laughs> so this story um, of Grover Cleveland Bergdahl um, is just absolutely fascinating to me. Like, this is a perfect example of a story that I, I would find that's obscure and interesting and has so many twists and turns and it's just insane. And the main thing is you're like, how do people not know this story? This seems, this should be in history books. This is just insane. So where did you first come across this story? Well, well, I've had a blog on political scandals for about uh, 10 years now. And one of the officials I wrote about was the alien property custodian. This was an official back in World War One and thereabouts. Uh, and he was charged with uh, basically seizing enemy property during the war, uh, any German ships that were happened to be in harbor when the war was declared, uh, any patents, oh. things like that. And uh, later on, he seized, seized the uh, seized property from the Bergdahl family uh, they, because he had declared them enemies of the state. <laughs> so, so I, I, I kind of fi- found out indirectly through that. I just randomly, randomly pulled up his name and said, OK, I'll profile this person. And then as I was researching him because he – wound up going to jail himself for kickbacks sometime later. No, oh, uh, found out about the Bergdahl story and just this bizarre thing. Like even even in the newspaper article, it's just this little tidbit. But it says, oh, yes, Grover Bergdahl, who back in 1920 uh, made up this story about how he had buried some gold and got out of prison. And then he's been on the lam in Europe ever since. So. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it is. It is just wild. So, yeah, if you don't mind, just start at the beginning. What was Bergdahl's background? Well, he came from a German family. His grandfather came over in the wave of German migration in the 1830s, and he uh, set up a brewery, which became very successful. So the family is very wealthy. Uh, they live in, uh, like I said, they live in, in Philadelphia near uh, Brewery Town, as it's called. It's still there. It's uh, okay. called that because there used to be quite a few uh, breweries established there. And so, so yes, he... Um, he was born in 1893, so he's coming of age during this very inventive time. Uh, this is when uh, cars are starting to come about. This is when uh, airplanes are being developed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's he's getting involved in that. He and his brothers are both getting involved in uh, auto racing. Uh, his brother actually buys in a uh, monoplane, which had been on display at a department store in Philadelphia. Oh, that's so and cool. So, so that really inspires his uh, interest in aviation. And so in uh, 1912, he actually ends up writing to the uh, Wright brothers, who by this time have established a flying school out in Ohio. And, you know, sure enough, if you had the money, if you had the wherewithal, you could just write to the Wright brothers and say, I want to learn to fly with you. So he goes out there. He 
Uh, start. I think uh, the flying school wasn't really there for too long. Uh, there were only about 113 people, I believe is the number, who actually learned uh, to fly with them. Uh, but Grover Cleveland Bergdahl was one of them. And at the end of it, uh, in order to get a little discount, he buys a plane from them. It's a Model B airplane. And so uh, he takes this back home and he sets up an airfield outside of Philadelphia. And he's just flying all the time. Like he's putting on these uh, big public displays. Uh, huge crowds are coming out to see him. Uh, he's racing trains with his plane. He's the first pe- first person to fly between <laughs> and Atlantic City. And in the middle of Philadelphia is uh, this big hulking city hall, and there's uh, the statue of William Penn on the top. And so one thing he did it on at least a couple of occasions was he would take his plane out there and he would just fly circles around William Penn and then, <laughs> and then move on. So. Oh man, what a what a guy! And, and he was also uh, involved in early uh, auto racing. Uh, he actually was uh, in one of the one of the early Indy 500s. Uh, there were races on that he could take part, part in. Uh, for a brief amount of time, there was a race in uh, Fairmount Park in Philadelphia. His brother actually uh, won that. And I think the next year it was dismantled. So he's the, the last person to ever win that. <laughs> so so he, he was involved in racing. Uh, he was also unfortunately involved in quite a bit of reckless driving uh, in, oh. in and around Philadelphia. Um, and uh, actually, at the end of 1912, he actually uh, went to jail for about three months um, because he had gotten involved in a bad car accident and he was uh, at fault in that. And so one of the one of the interesting things there is in the uh, Library of Congress, there's a uh, file for, from a correspondence with uh, correspondence between Grover Cleveland Bergdahl and Orville Wright. And some of the letters are where he's in, in prison, just kind of whiling away his time and uh, they're, t- they're discussing aviation. So. <laughs> oh, man, this guy just sounds like a total adrenaline junkie. So so then we get to the eve of the, the Great War, or as we call it, the, the First World War. Um, so how is how is he involved in that? Well, there's one indication that's uh, I think it was a very brief, uh, brief newspaper article, which actually shows up in uh, the archives that uh, his his uh, son actually donated to the uh, Philadelphia Historical Society, where it was reported that he went to the German consulate and offered up the plane to go serve, serve with the uh, with the German military during World War One. This was before the United States got involved in the war mm. uh, and was promptly informed that since the United States is a neutral country, he can't do that unless he wants to make his way over to Germany and volunteer in person. Um, so there was some sense that he, you know, kind of had some, some allegiance to the, uh, you know, to, as a German American to the German side. Um, that wasn't uncommon among German Americans before the United States, uh, entered the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also some sense that he may have just been looking for, looking for an adventure, looking to bring his plane somewhere to, uh, go see some, uh, you know, go, go see a new place, go, go, uh, experience some action because, uh, there's another document that says he, Actually, uh, where a friend remembers that he showed up at the uh, an armory in Philadelphia and tried to uh, volunteer with the uh, the Persian incursion into uh, Mexico, which was, a period oh. that was happening right around that same time. Uh, so there's some sense that he just wants to, you know, offer up his plane and go, uh, you know, go, go uh, you know, spot trenches for the troops or whatever. Yeah. And in, um, but so so yeah, and on that case, he's uh, he's just he's turned down as well because at this point you know know, what are you going to use a plane for it's it's very it's very rudimentary the use of uh, airplanes in war at this point so yeah interesting so so he is um given a draft order in world war one so how does he how does he respond to that 
Uh, well, the way the uh, drafts work, worked in World War One was uh, the first thing you had to do was uh, register for the draft. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were two registration calls um, for men of a certain age. Uh, there were certain exemptions that you could get, um, but those wouldn't come later. Basically, for the registration, it says if you're a man and you're between these ages, you know, go to your registration board and give them your information. And so he actually does that. Um, and that's just a, you know, the, the first step. It's a very common thing. And after this point, there's a fairly minimal chance that you'll actually be in the army after you register. Uh-huh. I think it's something like an 11% chance, um, that you would oh, actually, wow. that your, that your number would actually come up. And, uh, I think, I think occasionally they would do family exemptions. Uh, a lot of times it was, uh, uh, there'd be health exemptions. I believe, uh, World War One was kind of a wake up call about just how malnourished a lot of people were. Yeah. At this- because they were they were just not healthy enough to serve in the military, um, so wow. so so you did have to uh, meet a lot of uh, a lot of things after that. Um, but where he goes wrong is he's he's registered, but then he gets a call to basically meet with uh, meet with local draft board officials for one of these uh, ensuing steps, mm-hmm. and he doesn't show up for that. And so after that, he ends up getting uh, basically misses his appointment, um, gets. Automatic, automatically inducted into the army and then gets declared a, a deserter. Uh, oh. <laughs> circuitous thing as to how you get declared a draft dodger if you if you miss this step. Um, one of the ironic things is if you just skip registration, it's actually a much much more minor penalty uh, than if you, you know, are, are considered to be wow. a deserter from the military. So. Dang, dang. So, so he's declared a deserter, and then then what next? Uh, so he's on the run for, for a while after that. Uh, he, he gets declared a deserter in 1918. And, uh, so he's, he's hiding out for about two years after that. And he actually at one point sends a letter to the, um, to, to one of the Philadelphia papers because he finds out that his, uh, mother has been, uh, charged with basically aiding and abetting him. Oh. And so he gets very upset about that and, uh, he accuses um, one of the draft board members of basically having a grudge against him. And that's part of, he says, this is part of the whole trouble. You know, I, I was, uh, you know, out, I was out west, uh, looking for a ranch at that point. I was, uh, on, out, uh, you know, just out on my own. And then once, once I got back to Philadelphia, I found out that they're, you know, they're, they're, uh, trying to, uh, you know, trying to charge me with this, uh, with desertion. Uh, okay. so, you know, and then he, as soon as he found, find, finds out about that, he, you know, takes right, right off again. Um, so in this letter, he actually offers to be an, uh, aviation instructor. He says, I've got plenty of aviation experience. Uh, why don't I put it to use that way as opposed to just, you know, being drafted as a, as a foot soldier. And so that's, uh, a little, a, a little bit self-serving because, uh, if you're an aviation instructor, you're, uh, in a little bit more of a cushy job. You're stateside. Oh, yeah. Not seeing action. So if, if he had volunteered to be a combat pilot, it may have been a different story, but, uh, since he didn't, um, basically the, the draft board and the military officials say, no, we're not, we're not going to do that. We're not, we're not going to negotiate with you. Um, you know, come back and serve, come, come back and, and, uh, answer to this charge against you. So. Oh, that, that's so interesting that like, cause back then there's no, uh, there's no United States Air Force. Um, it would kind of be like today if there was a draft and like me and you both saying, let, you know what, let's, uh, we'd like to be in the Space Force. You know, it's just kind of an outlandish thing and, and a real strange, cushy job that he he wanted. I, that's that's really funny. So uh, so he he does not get this this cushy job that he prefers. So what was his next step? Uh, after that, he's um, kind of just bouncing around the country a little bit. This is um, this is something that's kind of causing some waves in Philadelphia because he had been a pretty well-known uh, person in Philadelphia. But outside uh-huh. of the area, he's really not uh, all that known. So he's, he's out West. Uh, I think he says he's you know, passing through Indiana at one point. Uh, I think he uh, claims at one point that he was in Milwaukee and came back to his garage and saw that someone had stenciled his name on the door. So he realizes they know. Oh, he's 
time to get the hell out of Dodge. <laughs> yeah. And so he's actually, he's actually, he, and he, and he actually keeps coming back to, uh, Philadelphia every now and then. There's one story about how, uh, he'd been involved in, uh, a bit of a shootout with police or other his brother had because his brother had also tried Dodge the draft and was also, uh, on the wow. hanging out with each other quite often. And, but most of the time they're in the, uh, kind of foothills of Maryland. Uh, so not too far from Philadelphia. They're just camping out in the field, uh, taking, uh, taking drives around the countryside. Um, you know, befriending this uh, couple that owns a hotel, uh, really just kind of whiling the time away, um, you know, kind of hoping, hoping this goes away, hoping the charges go away because yeah. they're, uh, they're, they're, they're on the land for quite a while. Like, um, by the time, um, you know, by, by the time he finally gets, uh, gets caught, it's actually been, you know, the, the war's been over. Um, so I think he'd kind of been hoping that, uh, you know, once the war was over, like maybe they'll just let this go. You know, you, you really don't need to pursue this charge anymore. Right. Yeah. So what what are his official charges like once he's once he's captured and how how is he captured? Uh, the story of his capture is basically what launches this into a big national story because it's so outlandish and so sensational. Um, this is probably one of those parts where like when I tell people the story they say wait is this, is this a fictional story? Yeah. <laughs> um, his um his friend by this point uh, this is in early 1920 when he's captured January 1920. Uh, his friend has been recruited by intelligence sources to basically spy on the family and uh, get a sense as to when Grover's going to be visiting home again to, to see his mother. Uh, so they realize at this point he's going to be he's going to be home. There's this uh, early morning raid on the house and his mother basically puts up a fight. She, she meets the meets the police with a with a with a pistol and you know, vows that they're not going to get in. And so they have to they have to wrestle her down first. And then they search the house and they find him hiding in a window seat. And, uh, so, so, so yes, it's this very bizarre, bizarre arrest where, you know, his, his mother takes part as well. And so then he's, um, he, he's taken from there. Um, there's actually a bit of a, quite an angry crowd that's also forming around at that point. So they kind of have to spirit him away. Uh, and they bring him up to the, to the military prison on Governor's Island in New York Harbor. And these are, uh, military charges he's being brought up on. Uh, he would fight quite hard to try to get this, uh, brought before a civil trial, but he's actually brought before a court martial for, oh. uh, violations of the, um, the Articles of War, uh, including desertion. Um, mm. so yeah, so he's found guilty at this court martial in 1920. Uh, and you know, he's, 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 uh, charged very quickly and he's sentenced to five years in prison. Mm. And so, um, so where, where does he serve that, that sentence at? So he's just, uh, at, at the start of it, he, he's just on, um, he, he's just on Gover- Governor's Island. Uh, there, there was a military prison there. Uh, so for the first, uh, I think for the, I think there was some idea that they were going to transfer him to Fort Le- Leavenworth, but at the, at the start of it, he's just, uh, he's just ser- serving it out at, on, on Governor's Island. Mm-hmm. So how, how long does he remain in prison? Not very long. <laughs> I think it amounted to maybe, I mean, he, he, he'd been, uh, he'd been charged in, uh, January, uh, yeah, he had been arrested in January. And so, uh, they had been convicted at court martial. And, uh, then, so he's in, so he ends up being in jail for about four months before he manages to escape. Uh, and, and this is, uh, this is where it really becomes a big national scandal <laughs> is, uh, that, um, he, he's, he's, uh, he's been convicted. He's, uh, on, he's serving out his sentence. And by all, by all accounts, you know, being a model prisoner, he's, uh, you know, helping out other prisoners. He's doing his, uh, he's doing the work around the island. He's, uh, he's, he's being fine. And then one day he, uh, basically asks, he says, well, you know, while I was, uh, while I was on the run, uh, while I was hiding in Maryland, I buried a sizable amount of gold. 
and I'd really like to go retrieve that before someone else happens to stumble across it, and then I'll lose it. <laughs> and he says, I, of course, you know, you might think, think it's outlandish, but, uh, you know, you can send me out under guard. He's got a legal team that's working on an appeal at this point. He lets them know. So they, they say, oh, okay, yeah, we can, we can arrange that. Uh, so they try to arrange this, uh, this expedition just to go down to um, the, this area outside of uh, Hagerstown, Maryland. And it's just this very poorly planned expedition. Uh, there should have been an officer on there, but there weren't any officers available. Uh, the person in charge of the prison says, well, I don't want it to be conspicuous because everyone knows who this guy is. They're going to ask, why is he, why is he out of prison? Oh. So, they, so they dress him up in a, um, in a uniform that's exactly the same as those two sergeants who end up uh, being assigned to, uh, being assigned <laughs> to guardian. And then instead of just saying, like, okay, well, we'll hop a train down to, uh, down to Washington DC or thereabouts. They end up going back to Philadelphia to meet with this attorney because the idea was basically the, okay, you know, we'll go to, we'll go back to his house. Uh, we'll get a car. Uh, he'll have someone chauffeur us down there. Of course, you know, of course they have a car. Of course they have a chauffeur and, and we'll go from there. Uh, they get off the train. His, his attorney meets them. Uh, the car allegedly has some, some mechanical problems. So they say, Oh, let's just bring it back to the house. We'll get, we'll look at it there. And the attorney makes himself scarce. The attorney actually has to go off and, uh, represent, uh, Grover's mother in court on the charges of, um, oh. Oh, that, that of course have been filed against her for <laughs> greeting police officers with a gun. And so that, and then the attorney, the attorney just makes himself scarce for a few days. He's, um, these sergeants are trying to get get a hold of him, but meanwhile Grover is also saying, "Well, you know, as long as we're waiting, might as well have a little bit of fun." They go out to a burlesque show. They they're, they're <laughs> in the town. They're, they're in this giant mansion. They're just having having a great time. At one point, uh, uh, just this bottle of uh, bottle of gin just happens to appear out of nowhere. So one of the sergeants is just uh, enjoying himself with that. And so yeah, this is a few days after they arrive there. They're trying to work work out uh, exactly you know how they're going to uh, you know, how they're going to proceed down to Hagerstown. And then just all of a sudden they realize, oh wait, where, where'd Grover go? And it's just they didn't have to slip outside. He'd show up where he's like, let's go. Get out of here. So. <laughs> what a wild ride. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, so where does he go next? Uh, so this is, um, so this is in May of 1920. Um, and he, he, he does this kind of, um, basically straight westward shot, uh, with this, um, with his, uh, with his chauffeur who's named Ike Stecker, I believe it is. Mm-hmm. And so he, he's heading across the country and, uh, of course the military puts out this basically all, all points bulletin. They say, they say, look out for this guy. They're, they're sending out wanted posters. And of course the downside of that is now the, now the entire country knows that these two fugitives are, are out there. But that means that everyone is looking for these fugitives and everyone is saying, well, I think I saw him out here in Las Vegas. Oh. Same day someone says, well, I think I saw him in Tampa, Florida. And, <laughs> and so it's just, there's, there's all these reports coming in. And meanwhile, they basically just head, uh, straight west and then they head up to this tiny little town in, uh, Minnesota. Uh, they cross the border into Canada. Um, while there, they manage to, uh, get some, get some fake papers. They there's a sol- there's an American soldier there who they manage to, under false pretenses, basically get some of his, his identification papers to get false passports. And then wow. they, and they, so they get these false passports. They make their way across Canada, back the, back in the way they had come. And then they, uh, just take a, take a ship across the sea. And like I said, Grover is, um, German American. He still has some relatives in Germany. Uh, so he, once he lands in England, he just makes, makes his way down to the continent, goes to, uh, goes to Germany to meet his relatives there. Uh, so that obviously doesn't go over too well in the United States because, wow, uh, yeah, it's a draft dodger who ends up fleeing to, fleeing to Germany while the United States is, since it didn't accept the Treaty of Versailles, still technically at war with Germany in, in 1920. So. Wow. So, oh, so 1920. So the war is over at this point. But there are still tensions. Um, and he, oh man, 
he must look terrible to the to the press. So is the press running stories about this guy is just like kind of a, making him this total villain, this traitorous villain? Pretty much. Like, um, you know, he he'd um he he kind of had middling coverage back in the days before World War One. Like, uh, there there been positive coverage about uh, you know, like oh, you know, he's look at uh, you know, look how well he's doing it in his races. Look how look at all these uh, aerial stunts he's doing. This is incredible. Versus the oh, he's uh, you know, he's charged again with um, you know, reckless driving. Um, uh-huh. It was actually uh, and the, the draft board uh, the draft board official he accused of being biased against him was actually uh, a newspaper man he, who he who he accused of uh, of having a bias against him. Um, but yeah, the press just uniformly turns against him after this point. The, um, the editorials are brutal. Um, there is very little sympathy. I think, um, I found a few private papers where people would say, would kind of say like, uh, just do like root for the underdog. They were saying like, oh, this is, oh, this, yeah. this is, you know, so entertaining. I can't believe he's managing to get away at all these turns. And, um, but yeah, like there, there is, um, yeah, the newspapers are very much against him. Uh, all of the veterans are really not, uh, really not a fan of him, obviously, and uh probably oh, yeah. and and probably the example showing just how far the disdain goes is periodic, periodically throughout this time where he's um where he's in hiding uh there are calls that he should either change his name or that people just shouldn't be referring to him as Grover Cleveland's Bergdahl because they say that's dishonoring former president Grover Cleveland <laughs> say, just just call him DC or something like that <laughs> oh man so i i've i've done a story on um the the people who um escaped from Alcatraz. Um, and there's this, you know, did they die? Did they, were they able to cross the channel? Are they still alive? Are they still alive today? All that kind of stuff. And, um, I, I felt like a lot of the, the public kind of like rooted for them to have gotten away. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's the opposite with this case. Like it right. seems that there, there are few and far between where people are kind of rooting for the underdog. And most people are just very angry at this, at they view him as like a, a traitor. And so, what um what did the United States what do they do? Uh well, well just kind of on, on on you know in in that same vein about the uh you know how how people are rooting uh uh-huh. and and how it's the the opposite opposite uh you know kind of the the opposite current you can you can definitely see that in the case of that uh, on two occasions uh, there are actually U.S. soldiers who try to kidnap kidnap Grover oh. and. And how that happens is there's uh there's an basically an occupied zone that the Allies have in Germany after the war, and uh-huh. so the U.S. is stationed there for a little while. Um, so there's an un, uh, the occupation zone, and then the rest of Germany, which is un, unoccupied. Uh, so on one occasion in 1921, and on another occasion in 1923, there are actually U.S. soldiers who just try to um, just try to kidnap him by force and take him into the occupation wow. zone. Wow spirited away back to the United States because he can't be, uh, he, he basically can't be extradited from, uh, from Germany as it is under current diplomatic relations. Uh, oh. and, and once that happened and, and when that, when that happens, when these kidnapping attempts happen, people are totally on the side of the kidnappers. It's creating this huge international incident. Germany is just, uh, absolutely, uh, enraged by the fact that, you know, these American soldiers would see fit to, you know, come on come onto their soil and try to uh, kidnap this person. And <laughs> in the United States is just, Absolutely on their side. They're, uh, they're, I think, I think in the second one, there, there's this, uh, petition effort which collects something like two and a half million, peti- million signatures trying to, uh, trying, trying to get the German government to, to, uh, to free these what? people. What? Um, <laughs> but, but for the most part, um, there, there was, there, there was a little bit of, uh, kind of tacit support for this. Like, um, I did find this one document in the National Archives, which, uh, had said something about this. It's like, oh, you know, if, if, if we can maybe manage to Shanghai and moat back into the occupation zone, wouldn't that be nice? Um, wow. but, but there's a bit of a mix. Like, there are, um, 
there, there's there's some diplomatic efforts. They they say, well, maybe you know, maybe Canada can can extradite him because he had a phony passport. Uh, maybe Britain can extradite him. Maybe you know they're they're trying they're trying these different avenues. Nothing's really working out. Um, the kidnapping. Uh, the military officials are really not that happy about that. They say this is just complicating things. We we don't want that to happen. Obviously. Oh yeah. Uh, and actually, in, I believe it's after the second kidnapping attempt, the American Legion actually sends an emissary to say, well, let's let's try to negotiate something. Let's try to uh, see see if you, you'll just come back. You know, maybe we can work something out. And that kind of makes a little bit of progress, but but doesn't end up happening. Like uh, Grover is very indecisive during this time, and uh, he ends up uh, basically missing his appointment. There was the idea of like, okay, you're going to be on this ship, and then the ship sails, and he's not on it. So. Oh. So at this point, is um, is Bergdahl like living large, or is he living like as a, a fugitive? He's kind of living large. He's in this little town called uh, Eberbach, uh, which is where his uh, uncle lives. His uncle owns a hotel called the Hotel Kronpost, which is uh, still over there. And and yeah, he's he's managed to get plenty of money. His uh, his mother is still managing to send uh, send a fair amount of money over there. Uh, so so at least at the start, uh, he's he's doing quite well. He's um, you know, he's one of the few people who can uh, manage to afford a car. He's, uh, by, by most accounts, being very charitable to people in terms of um, just helping out with, uh, you know, helping people out with money and all that. Um, keep in mind, this is post-war Germany. The the economic situation there is really not that good at all. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so so what year is this at this point? So that the kidnappings, how, how long does he stay in Germany? Uh, he stays in Germany right up until 1939. So... <laughs> That is just such a long time. So he is um, all this time. There, there's all these efforts to extradite him to get him back. There's these vigilantes angry at this deserter trying to trying to kidnap him. This is just insane. And now it leads us up to the eve of the Second World War. Correct. It's it's right up until and and that was that was one of the most bizarre things as well as saying like, Oh, it's right up until, okay. Right up until, you know, basically, yeah, I think it's a few months before war breaks out in Europe again, that he's, that he's over there. During this time, does he ever return to the United States? Um, does he ever like kind of sneak back in disguise or is he just hiding, hiding, hiding in Germany? Uh, he actually, uh, sneaks back on a couple of occasions. Uh, he, he, well, for, first off, he gets married while he's over there. Um, he, mm-hmm. he, uh, he finds a German, German bride and, uh, it's this marriage that lasts for a good long time, about, um, close to 40 years. I think it, I think it, it is. Wow. Uh, so, um, they, and they have several children together. Um, so yeah, just on a couple of occasions, he just manages to, uh, get other phony passports and manage to make his way back. Uh, back to the United States and make his way back to the, you know, back to the same house where he was captured and just uh, kind of live in hiding there. And on some occasions live there for several years at a time before managing to uh, go back to the, go back to Europe again. Dang, this guy, this guy, he just adrenaline junkie, but just seems to be very, very smart as well to be able to avoid this, this manhunt for so long. Right. Uh, and this is one of the really astonishing parts of the story. Um, like as we as we've discussed, uh, there's just this uh, decades long uh, de- de- decades long campaign just to say you know, bring bring Bergdahl back. Like the American Legion has their annual conferences, and every single year there's the you know, we we aver that Grover Cleveland Bergdahl must come back from Germany. He must. You know, <laughs> and yeah, this is just uh, going on for. For, for years. I mean, it has a, a surprisingly long lifespan because, of course, there are things that manage to keep it in the news. I mean, there's by the time you're getting into the 30s, people are kind of starting to uh, ease up a little bit. They're saying like, OK, yeah, maybe World War One wasn't the smartest thing. Maybe that wasn't the war to save democracy or to make oh, the world democracy. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, in 1939, he finally says, um, 
he, he finally says, okay, um, he'd been hoping for a pardon. He'd been hoping that, uh, that Warren G. Harding was just going to pardon all draft dodgers unconditionally. That didn't happen. Um, mm-hmm. FDR did, uh, a, a little bit. His, um, his brother was actually one of the people who, uh, benefited from that because he, um, he had actually, right after Grover, uh, escaped from prison, he said, okay, maybe I should turn myself in. <laughs> and, uh, before, you know, because otherwise it's going to be really bad for me. So his brother turns yeah. in, serves the sentence. And then, uh, how many years later, uh, gets pardoned by FDR. Um, but with Grover, it's just, there's just this, you know, through all these presidential administrations, through all these years, it's just the, no, you're going, you're going to serve your sentence. He kind of becomes the kind of kind of the embodiment of uh, all these draft dodgers. Like there 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 were about three hundred thirty thousand in the war, um, oh. but, but there had been just this idea that like he he's the he's the one he's the one who's flaunting it. He's the he's the rich guy who you know uh, thought he could get away with this. So so there's a little bit of there's definitely a little bit of that about the you know kind of the symbol symbolism of we we need to catch Grover Bergdahl. But probably one of the uh, strangest things that happens is after all these years of uh, we need to bring Grover back is he finally says, okay, I'm boarding a ship. I'm on the ship. It's going to dock in New York on this day. And uh, you can, you can meet me there. You can take me into custody. Wow. And when he does that, then there's a uh, congressman who uh, had served in world war one, header into purple heart, not a Bergdolf hen who's who introduces this legislation, which doesn't explicitly say, Grover Cleveland Bergdahl isn't allowed back in the United States, but might as well. It's um, it's the the language is something along the lines of uh, anyone who uh, was uh, inducted into the military and then uh, dodged the draft and fled to a, for an enemy nation, something something like that. Oh, <laughs> so it's very, it's, it's very much laser focused on him. Uh, it's any anyone who does that is is uh, is not allowed back into the country. Is is bar is barred from our shores. Oh. Uh, and so this passes the House unanimously, and it goes to the Senate at, as the ship is sailing towards the United States. And so there's this very kind of dramatic high noon uh, Senate committee conference between Grover's lawyer uh, Harry Weinberger and uh, and and this congressman and the uh, various um, and, and the various senators just saying and he, and he's just saying like if you look at the Constitution, this is blatantly unconstitutional. And even at that point, people are saying, "Well, but we don't like this guy. Why, why don't we?" And, and of course, and, and of course, if you look at the time, Harry Weinberger is making the very, very good point, saying, "Like if you if you can do this to one person, you can do this to a lot of people." You know, if you look at yeah. what's happening in Europe, this is not something we want on the books. So, yeah. so, so it ends up. Uh, I, I think what the, what they were debating basically was, do we want to take a vote on this before the ship arrives, um, or do we just want the ship to arrive? In which case, the military is going to arrest him, and it's going to become a moot point. And so they end up deciding, okay, we're just going to let the ship land. We're going to let things uh, work themselves out. Ah, uh, so oh man, so so the ship the ship lands, um, and is he like you know greeted just with immediately being taken into custody? Uh, he's he actually he, he's treated pretty well. He's um, he's given. Um, He's taken on. I think the the main thing they did was they they didn't let the ship go to land. They said, okay, we're going to send out a coast guard cutter and it's going to pick you up because we don't, we know what you've done in the past. We don't want to you're, you're going to slip away in the craft or something. Um, so so they they take him in, into custody aboard the ship. But they're actually they're um they're even allowing him a little bit of time with uh, reporters uh, who are asking oh, wow. about the you know why why why'd you come back uh, this that and the other thing and. Um, Amusingly enough, one of the questions is, uh, is Mr. Bergdahl, what do you think about the skyline? Because he, he left in 1920 and since then, you know, the Chrysler building's gone up, the Empire State. Wow. Up, uh, so of course, you know, he's snuck back into the country. He's seen this, but he does a good job acting. Apparently he says, Oh wow, I've never seen anything like this. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. But, but he, he didn't say, guys, guys, I have a bunch of gold in the hills. If you just let <laughs> me. <laughs> 
they, they actually did resolve the gold question. I'm pretty sure if you, I'm pretty sure if you hunt around online, you can still see some, uh, some forums about the, you know, people saying, well, I can go, I can go out with a pickaxe somewhere, somewhere in those hills and maybe I'll find the bird doll gold, but you're, you're not going to find it there. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. So, so he, um, are the charges still the same? So he has to serve that, um, I think it was what, five years? Uh, correct. Um, uh, it was it was the five year charge? He'd served um, four months of that, so he had to serve the rest of that, and then he had the uh, added on charge of the fact that he escaped from custody. Um, so he had to serve yeah. an additional. Um, it was originally an additional three years, but then that got knocked down to uh, two years. Okay. Wow. So, so what year did he uh, get out? Uh, he got out of prison in 1944. Wow. That is so he. <laughs> This is that is so ironic that he dodged World War One by choice and then he dodged World War Two by imprisonment. Right. <laughs> it's just... and, and and strangely enough, like during during this time, like during um like in the lead up to the to his uh, second court martial and while he's in prison, like uh some of it seems to be an act, um, but some of it definitely seems to be sincere as he's he's saying, like, I'm I'm much more contrite, you know, I've seen um, you know, I've I've come to learn the value of American democracy and this, that, and the other thing. Um, but also once he goes to prison, he's saying, like, oh, you know, I've got some pretty valuable information I while while I was over there. I, I had a plan oh, yeah. to um you know, to Hitler's Germany. And and then actually remarkably enough, he um he actually offers to uh to fly uh, in the U.S. Army Air Forces, he, he says, "Hey, I've got this experience. Um, you know, if you if you let me out of prison, I'll I'll join up. I'll um, I'll go get in a plane. I'll I'll serve for the United States." And uh, that actually gets turned down, um, probably at this point because uh, he actually hasn't flown since um, you know since about uh, 1915 thereabouts. Um, <laughs> his, his plane uh, his plane they actually found uh, in a in a shed, um, and they actually restored it. Uh, you can still see it today at the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia. Wow. So his plane at this point is they they restored that and put it in the museum about 1934 I think it was so his plane is literally a museum piece at this point. So. Oh my gosh! Yeah, was, I don't know if yeah, flying so biplanes can translate well to flying you know huge prop planes. Now. Right. right. <laughs> what what happens after um, after World War II ends? Uh, after World War II ends after um, after he gets out of prison. Um, it's it's kind of at, at this point he basically just vanishes in terms of uh, press coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, there there have been kind of nonstop press coverage for for a while. There have been kind of a low in coverage in the late 30s because not too much was happening. Um, there's like one little blip because he's arrested for assaulting his butler. I'm pretty <laughs> sure for that. Um, but he's just um, he's moved out of uh, Philadelphia. He's living in a in Virginia on, on a farm with his wife and yeah, and then that happens. And then basically uh, he's really not heard from again. Um, so most of the details about his later life um, are just, you know, they're, they're uh, nothing, nothing really comes up in the, in the press. There's really nothing, uh, nothing noteworthy that, uh, that I guess people would, would really be uh, really be too interested in. Um, he does unfortunately have a pretty, um, pretty bad mental, um, mental decline during that time. He became, he, he becomes pretty abusive. Um, but yeah, this was all stuff that I found out, uh, because his, uh, son wrote a manuscript, which is in a historical archive in, in Philadelphia. So, oh wow, uh, yeah, before I found out that it was just like, uh, he gets out of prison, he assaults a butler and then there's just a 20 year gap. Void. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what year did he, he finally pass away? Uh, 1966. 1966. Wow. What a life that man lived. <laughs> it's just, it's astounding. I really, I wish I could just get into this guy's head but you having having written about him what do you think Bergdahl's like personal 
beliefs were? Like, was he this noble uh, idealist who you just maybe had negative thoughts about just the war to end all wars in general? Or was he just this adrenaline junkie flyboy that just was seeking action wherever he could find it? Like, what do you what do you think his his personal drive was? So, so I think to some extent he he was a little skeptical about uh, the the motives of the war. Um, mm. From from the German Americans' pr- perspective, he he was uh, he. I, I think I think his mother uh, quite quite often said something along the lines of, you know, we we learn in school that uh, that the the British were the enemies of the Americans. You know, how come we have to fight on their side this time around? <laughs> uh, and uh, he he writes a letter to his attorney um, saying something along those lines. Uh, but I think he. He also says something along the lines of, you know, I wish, I wish I was, uh, I wish, I, I really wish I could be a man without a country. I really wish, you know, I didn't have to, you know, be tied to this. Um, so, 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 so he has almost these like libertarian ideals about the, you know, huh. it's like, you know, what's, what's the government to say that I have to go, go fight, fight for this country? Yeah. And at the same time, like you could, you could tell he, um, he was kind of to a certain extent, like, you know, kind of thumbing his nose at the authorities. Um, at the same, at the same time, like he, he was, Kind of dead set. Uh, one, like, like I think, I think the reason this kind of dragged on for a long time was like he he was convinced that he was going to get pardoned after a while. They said, okay, this whole thing's going to blow over. It's not not a big deal. And I, I think he was very much unprepared for the fact that uh, he became this kind of like national lightning rod, as it were. Yeah, yeah. And so, so I, and, and he just kind of dug himself in, and that's you know how he ended up ended up spending uh, twenty years, uh, twenty years on the run. So yeah, that yeah, it's, and it's it's so crazy how many people's lives changed. By the, this great war and just the the draft, which correct me if I'm wrong, was just a lottery, right? It was randomized who was you know drafted and who wasn't. Uh, correct. Like this was um, one of one of the uh, I, I think I think the idea that uh, why, why people were worried about uh, the draft at first was this would be this was going to be the first time it happened since the Civil War. Like there were enough um, enough volunteers for the uh, Spanish American War, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the Civil War, once the draft happened, it really uh, didn't turn out too well. There were the draft riots in New York. There was, um, mm-hmm. it, it really didn't, uh, bring, bring as many soldiers as they thought it was going to. And then of course there was the clause where it says, as an alternative, you can pay $300 and someone else will serve for you. Um, so <laughs> with world war one, they actually, um, they scrapped that. Um, so it's just this idea of it's, you know, the, the age range and, uh, kind of selected at, selected at random. Um, and anyone who's, uh, found fit enough to serve, uh, can be inducted. Um, but uh, the the interesting thing about that is uh, just a little side story on that was how um, you know there had been the this idea of uh, you're dishonoring uh, the former president Grover Cleveland he's this great patriot <laughs> you and then this is coming up before a congressional investigation into his escape and his mother is, is testifying and I think the the prosecutor says something along the lines of you know why'd you name your your son after this great American patriot with a with a military vigor or whatever and she just says he wasn't that he he paid to get his way out of the Civil War. <laughs> And which is absolutely true. He, Grover Cleveland did. <laughs> That's so funny. Oh my gosh. That's incredible. What a, what a great comeback to that, to that question. <laughs> I, I'd like to end on this question. This, this draft that, you know, completely changed people's lives. It's all random. What do you think would have became of Grover Cleveland Bergdahl if he wasn't drafted? If his name wasn't called? What do you think he would have done instead? I've thought about that, and it's really kind of tough to say because uh, he had kind of given up on on flying for a little bit. Um, he, he he'd been flying pretty much nonstop for a while, and then he um, he had given up for a little bit. Um, I think he had been uh, auto racing for for a while, but he had kind of eased up on that a little bit. Uh, his family owned the brewery, but of course, uh, you're coming right up against uh, prohibition, so that's oh, yeah. one of the breweries that you know shuts down for prohibition and never really reopens. Uh, so he he really did like to. 
uh, kind of tinker as it was. He, he was, he was big into uh, engineering and building and things like that. Um, so, I mean, that's one, one option. Like he may have uh, been, been involved more in, um, you know, more in something along those lines about, uh, you know, engineering or, um, or, or, or even, um, I think he, like, he was, he was very fascinated by like the spirit of St. Louis and the transatlantic flights. Oh yeah. Yeah. So that may have rekindled his interest in, in aviation. He may have gone back into that. Uh, at the same time, like his, um, his children, uh, in the, I interviewed his, uh, youngest child and, um, his, uh, and, and there's the manuscript written by his oldest child. Uh, neither of them remembers him too fondly. So, I mean, there is the, also the possibility that, uh, I think, I think they both had their, the opinion, like he worked well in the structured environments, but not on his own. Uh, oh. so he prison, but not, not anywhere else. <laughs> so there is, so, so I think there is that possibility that, you know, maybe he just would have been, you know, kind of lounging around, living off, living off the family fortune and really not doing too much. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of, kind of, uh, kind of tough to say, but. <laughs> yeah. Have you, uh, heard of the podcast Serial? Ah uh, yes. Have you heard of uh, season two? I just thought it was really interesting. There was that season two of Serial is about a military deserter named Bo Bergdahl. Right, right. And I always, I always, I I know it's probably just a coincidence, but I just wanted to know if you knew that. Right. Yes. Uh, like when when this case came up, it was um it, it was very very bizarre to hear that case come up because um they're 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 not related as far as I can tell. The uh, the the na- the spelling of their the last spelling names. yeah. Is different. Uh, the certainly the circumstances of um of you know his his um his going AWOL over in Afghanistan were different than you know Grover just not not showing up for for this draft appointment. Um, but I mean it was very interesting because yes you you saw like um you know there was kind of like the same you know big patriotic fervor and and people yes. and yelling you know hang hang the traitor Bergdahl. I said wait yes. what? Yes. And, and then um so so there was that and then of course um interestingly enough uh when he when uh grover bergdahl came back to the united states uh his attorney was saying something along was trying to make the argument says like look it's been 20 years he's been away from his family and and, and his country he's, he's you know he's been in this exile for the longest time hasn't isn't that enough and i think with Bode bergdahl there was kind of the same thing he says he, he was in the custody of the taliban can we can we call that good can we <laughs> not give him anything else on top of that so. wow that is literally the epitome of history doesn't repeat itself but it it certainly rhymes <laughs> in this case with the uh, last name <laughs> if you like historium and the kinds of stories that i tell here i absolutely recommend that you check out the artful dodger you can find it right now wherever books are sold and lastly is there anything you'd like to plug um anywhere we can find you online dirk uh the blog on political scandals is called the downfall dictionary Awesome. Well, I just want to say one more time, thank you so much for being on the show. Once again, thank you for this opportunity. I think I'm your only your second author interview. So yes, yes. Yeah. yeah so I'm so I'm, so I'm very glad that uh, I, I uh, I'm very glad that you gave me this opportunity, and uh, looking forward. Hope people enjoy the show. <laughs>